This episode is sponsored by Squirrel Sisters. Squirrel Sisters is a health and wellness company founded by sisters Gracie and Sophie Tyrrell, who are on a mission to help you treat your health. As we all know, I love my food, but one thing I tend to struggle with is the balance between being healthy and indulging in quote-unquote snacks. I like to keep my sugar consumption reasonably low without restricting myself on tasty treats and that's where Squirrel Sisters come in. They have a range of healthy snacks, bars and nibbles that can be found in stores across the nation including Waitrose, Holland and Barrett, Selfridges and online on Amazon. All their products are 100% natural, vegan, gluten-free and made with the highest quality ingredients and most importantly, do not have any added sugars. It's a win-win for all. My personal favourite is the Cacao Orange Energy Bars, which taste just like a Terry's Chocolate Orange, but without all the bad stuff. Follow the brand on Instagram, at Squirrel Sisters. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm Hannah Harley-Young, a photographer by trade and a foodie at heart. Each week, I sit down and chat all things food with well-known foodies, industry insiders, chefs and people who just love their food. Today, I'm joined by Femi Oyeniran. I've known this wonderful man for over 10 years now. He was the first person who took a chance on me when I was 20 and gave me my first presenting gig on his then side project, a chat show called Cut the Chat. More on that later. He is most well known for portraying Mooney in the films Kid Adulthood and Adulthood and Bookie in Anotherhood. And this was all whilst he was studying for his law degree at the London School of Economics. Brains and acting talent. I like it. His first feature film as a writer and director, It's a Lot, was released in 2013. And since then, he has gone on to produce series for Sky Living and ITV, as well as writing for Idris Elba on his Netflix series, Turn Up Charlie. His 2016 feature film, The Intent, gained unprecedented success and was followed up by a prequel, The Intent 2, The Come Up, which was sold to Netflix worldwide and won several notable awards. Yeah, baby, we're going global. <laughs> He's been a busy man over the last 10 years, but that hasn't stopped him from showing his interest in politics, appearing regularly on Sky News Sunrise and the BBC. He also recently delivered a TEDx House of Parliament talk about youth offenders he worked with to create films called Prison Democracy. Femi, thank you so much for joining me. You have been a busy man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you? I'm okay. Um, it's really nice to be recording face-to-face -face at a socially distanced sort of uh, meter or half but yeah <laughs> but um yeah how are you I'm good you know I feel like I feel this lockdown has been really great I feel it's been I've been super productive I've done great business I've done I've probably been more like if you're talking about in terms of like generating money been more effective during this period why do you think I, I, I don't know maybe because I'm more focused okay. uh, um and the fact that I'm at home means that I feel like one of my the main problems with my work and the way I work is I like interacting with people but sometimes traveling around London takes away time that I should be spending on creating and true creativity happens for me at least when I get to go away I'm, I'm by myself and I'm meditating on an idea and I feel like that comes from the training of being in the library for hours, studying law and stuff like that. So I, I, I like communicating in groups about on a macro level. But I feel like, you know, the intricacies of, of, of bringing something to life happens with an individual sitting by themselves and like, you know, being really focused on a concept. And I feel that's what I've been able to do in this period of time. I think also they say in times of adversity that's when like the true creativity kind of like comes to light because you're sort of forced to um you're forced to kind of dig deeper so to speak you know this was so out of our control and all of us creatives you know obviously my photography career is slightly on hiatus right now <laughs> but then but then you know crazy sexy food kind of had its moment so uh, there's sort of a, a beauty in the the pain. No, absolutely. I feel I feel I feel like you know that's completely true. I feel, you know, I've 
I've just learned so much about myself. I've been able to be more active. I walked here today. Like, Did you? Know, you? Yeah, I would have ran here, but I thought, oh, let me not turn up sweaty. Um, <laughs> Sorry, right. we have but, a shower for you here. <laughs> but I've been running a lot and, you know, I've been exercising a lot more than I would normally. And I'm, I, I train quite a lot. So one of my friends passed away, you know, my best friend passed away um, in 2018. And then from that moment, I've been like, you know, been really active and trying to exercise, but I've probably trained more than ever in the past sort of three months. Mm. And I've had time to spend time with my children. I've been playing football with my older son and stuff like this that I've envisioned myself doing as a man, as a father and all of these things that I've not been able to do. I've been able to do Yet at the same time, I've been able to be creative and, you know, me and my business partner just signed to CAA, which is like Amazing. the biggest agency in the world. We just signed to Macro, which is like one of the biggest management companies in America. Like, you know, there's so much going on behind the scenes that we've been able to do. But you can't really, I suppose when you're moving, when you're constantly moving, you can't put fuel into your engine room and you can't reflect and this has been an enforced period of reflection for for me as a man and also as a businessman and also as a filmmaker and as a writer and a director and so on and so forth. I think actually we will look back at this period of time and I don't want to be cliche and say, oh, you know, we'll look back and say it happened for a reason. But I do think there is some sort of truth in that on all sorts of different levels, whether you are you know a naturist or someone and you're like you know the earth needed a moment just to pause or I think we all needed to pause I think we all needed to really just sit back and be like what am I doing what do I stand for and what's important mm. so. I, th I think the rush I think the, the the rush of London living um is is quite intoxicating it's hard to push press stop I always start my conversations by asking what you had for breakfast. Nothing, <laughs> nothing. We were, had, we were talking about this I've before had, we recorded. I've, I've had your um, your lovely dragonfly tea. Um, <laughs> he asked for green tea, green but tea. I've given him the sort of a jasmine, jasmine hybrid. Exactly, and and that's what I've had for breakfast. Usually I'll eat like at 12, but I, I had dinner late because I do intermittent. I'm on an intermittent Look at spectrum. You. Look at you. I'm on you're, a spectrum. You're a changed man no, from trying. the days I used I'm to hang out with I'm you. I'm trying. I think I think it's important to to um to try and I still like sugar. I think that's my biggest problem. I like sugary food a lot, and so even though um I train a lot and I think I'm probably the healthiest I've ever been, I still can't really get over the sugar thing. Okay, which is how do you feel about sugar alternatives? It's not so sugar, like is it? you know having a date or sort of stuff like that. No, I try, you know, and do you know what I find really helps helps with my sugar thing? I like nuts a lot as well, so I, I've been replacing. So every time I'm craving for sugar, instead of having like a sugary thing, I go for like a pistachio Perfect. or cashew nuts. So I have loads and loads of that lying around. But I again, I just have maybe too much of that. Yeah. <laughs> This is the problem. It's like we can't do the whole thing, like everything in moderation. There's no it's balance. Like it's either zero or 100. <laughs> so what is your relationship with food like in general? Do you know what? I love food and, and um, I like to enjoy in food. So I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not one of those people like, you know, I don't like functional food. I don't like to have food just as a function. I wish I did because I'll, I'll probably be super ripped and like, you know, but like, I just like, so I say to my wife all the time, if I'm doing all this training... I want to be able to eat what I like. So I'm, whereas uh, people that train a lot will be like, oh no, you need to watch what you eat. The idea of that just sounds like so boring and dry. And that's why I introduced this sort of intermittent 16-8 thing because I thought it would help me moderate how much I eat or, and, or how much I eat and when I eat and all of these things. But I love food. I like trying different food from different places. I'm... I like particularly sweet things, as we've said. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I've always had that. And um, I think it's really important to be able to eat what you like. And when you're on set, how do you find sort of like your, your eating patterns on set? Because when I'm on shoots, I'm really bad because the temptation is just too much for me to manage. 
because they're bringing in all catering and they're bringing in everything that I love that I never would buy myself. No, absolutely. So how do you deal with it? <laughs> I accept it and I make sure. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a not well, yeah, about 10 days ago and I had a shoot, I shot a music video and um, it was my production company, but obviously put aside loads of budget for food and there's just all this Priorities. food. Lying, yeah, there's all this food lying around. <laughs> And you sort of, um, I accept that on shoot days, I'm going to eat badly. I'm going to sleep badly. I'm going to do everything badly. It becomes a problem when you have a, a long shoot. So when you're shooting for a month nonstop on like feature films or like six weeks or whatever. So I put on, I put, always put on loads of weight. So I always really? come out okay. of shoots having overeating, but I, I don't kill myself over it. Thank God it's not I, just me then. Yeah, I just, because, because. Because at the same time, when you're working, when you're on a shoot, it's sort of like, um, it's a bad shoot where there's not enough food. There's so many other things to worry about that the last thing you want to worry about is the fact that I'm really hungry right yeah. now. And so I, I just accept that I'm going to eat loads of foods and I, I just do. And I, I even, I'm one of those people I stash, I still and take it home. <laughs> so like for weeks after, I've got all these like cereal bars like that's their favorite things on shoes. i know oh, Who, like, God, like a granola <laughs> bar oh my like a track bar they or something love like them what on is shoots. that they love these yeah. things on shoots but, oh god and you're just piling up the uh, the calories with these things but they love them but i always like take loads home i think they sort of see it as like a slow releasing energy bar it's like no, no that's just not. like a little snack exactly. before my main meal exactly so you're from um, a Nigerian background. What was food like growing up? You know, what were you eating? Who cooked? What was the sort of setup? You know, because I, I, I was born in Nigeria. So when I lived in Nigeria, I lived kind of all over. So I lived, I suppose, like my earliest sort of memories is from when I moved to my grandparents when I was five. And um, I, I lived with them for a bit. It was quite, I suppose, my grandmother, she had what would be a food business sort of like oh, a, wow. a, a food business like a breakfast business like that's how we would describe it so she used to sell this thing called pap i don't even know what the english equivalent maybe it is called pap here what is it like a porridge yeah like a porridgey type white like a, looking thing okay and is, um, it, is it like the consistency of like grits I don't know what grits are. You know, it's that, like, that real like... Um, American... Like that, American soul food. Like... But it's not hard though. No, grits it's are hard, like... Because oh, I thought there was like a porridgey thing. I've never Maybe really it's the same. It. Maybe it's... I didn't like it. I remember I tasted grits once. I thought it was nasty. Yeah, no, I wasn't and, a fan. And, and so, so yeah, so she would sell that and um, this thing called my mind, which is like a bean-based protein type thing. Yeah. Right? And, and that was her business. Like that was my wow. grandma. So we mostly... I can't really fully remember, but I'm sure I had that for breakfast most days when I lived with my grandparents because that was what and she was, was selling. where was this in Nigeria? This was in a, in, in a small town called Modakeke, which is right next to Ife. So Ife is the home of Yoruba people and like my town is right next to it and they have civil war every like, I think they've stopped now. Day. <laughs> like, but they have civil war all Fine. the time. Like, it's been hundreds and hundreds okay. of years because there's that argument i don't even know where it comes from i should study it and find out why yeah. there's that beef yeah but yeah but uh, sort it out. exactly <laughs> but ultimately that's that's i lived with them there and then and then it was very much like you know sort of carb-based food with protein and that's like nigerian diet so loads of carby food so you'd have pounded jam and then you'd have like i remember there was this nasty thing called ground rice that when I lived in Lagos with my aunt before I moved to England, they, they would like, their, her husband like ground rice a lot, which was again like a pounded jam looking type okay. thing, but so made was from it, but rice. So was it dry or was it wet? It was moistish. Oh God, don't use that word. You know like... <laughs> You're not allowed to use that word. <laughs> Moist is the I worst You know word. like pounded jam? Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is it dry oh, so or like wet? S- Pounded yam, I'd say, was kind of like another awful word, sticky. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It, yeah, I mean, it's like... Like, what is it? Well, it, I guess it goes down as wet. Yeah, so sort of, I suppose it's wet. Yeah, right? okay. So like pounded jam, amala, um, eba, which is like um, made from cassava, like finely grounded cassava, I, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, Nigerians can correct me. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe I'm wrong about these things. There's like a lot of stuff made from beans. So it's like... Nigerians will find like a thing and think of all the different ways to make it. So there's my mind, but then there's this other thing that I would describe as a bean cake. 
So it's um it's sort of like um Jamaicans have saltfish fritters, but imagine that, but made just out of beans, and then it's fried. And then they had what else did they make God, with aren't beans? Beans just the most versatile. Yeah, so like so they did, and then they'll have beans by itself, <laughs> right? And so they'll right. and then they will there'll be like two three different ways to make beans. So there'll be like you know they'll they'll have the black eyed beans, mainly black eyed beans because I think it grows in in Africa, or they will make the beans in a sauce. Okay. So it would come out like you know sort of like with this sort of like orangey tomatoey type sauce mm. together mixed in and so this is like just and is that with all like the scotch bonnets because we're yeah it's yeah, very, yeah it's quite a spicy, spicy. cuisine yeah, yeah absolutely so then you've got you've got those different types of beans like that that's like four different meals that Jeez. i just told you about <laughs> you know i am not sleeping next to anyone after yeah, eating that right? meal <laughs> right and then all you had all just these really carb heavy food and they call it like i went to nigeria they call it swallow because it's almost like you swallow pounded yeah, yeah, jam yeah. right rather than you're not really chewing it mm. you kind of swallow it see i can't eat pounded yam can't you i just it, i don't feel like i've got the um <laughs> stomach for it i just it's so heavy it's it puts you to sleep definitely it's, it's just too it's too carby it's too thick it, I don't know. It I just... mean, whenever I land in Lagos, I've not really landed in... I was born in Lagos. I've not landed in Lagos until I've had pounded jam. Yeah. Like, I'll have... And what would you eat pounded jam with? So, I've... In, in Nigeria, there's a restaurant called Yellow Chili in Lagos. So, if you're ever in, like, Victoria Island in Lagos, you have to check it out. Yellow Chili, and it's, like, almost like a... They do... It's a restaurant, but they serve traditional Yoruba meals. And so, I have seafood okra there so they'll have like a sea like loads of seafood like you know just like a mixed seafood sauce and you have the pounded jam and you dip it i'll send you videos yeah, i've got videos like, you know i um have spent a part of my life eating quite a bit of nigerian food <laughs> <laughs> as we know that laugh um and one of my favorite dishes in Nigerian cuisine is ethyl. Yeah, yeah. Most Nigerians I speak to are like, what, you like ethyl? Because that's so spicy. And it's that sort of like, it's also got that, it's like a kind of a bean, or like yeah. a soya bean in it. With no, a bit, a bit of like dried shrimp. Yeah, yeah, so they put dry oh shrimp. God. It just depends. The thing is, it's And it's how like bits of um, spinach, I think, in yeah, it as yeah. well. So, so I suppose how, 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 there's like lots of different versions of that as well. And so there's, um, there's um, egusi, which is like the little sort of, I don't know, my mum told me the English word. It's like melon seeds yes. that they've blended. It's yeah. like blended melon seeds. So it's so funny. The thing is that like, there's a lot of these Yoruba, like, like these Yoruba cuisines. I don't know what the English thing that goes in it is. Yeah. And like, I have to ask my mum, like, what is the English <laughs> word for this thing? Because again, because I have to explain it to my wife, who's like, you know, her mum's South African, her dad's English. So like, I have to explain it to my wife and she's like, oh, so Femi, and this is my wife's mum's favourite thing is to ask me questions about <laughs> how to make Nigerian food. And I'm like, I, I used to try to explain it to them yeah. and then later they'll pull me up on it and then they'll make me out to be some kind of liar. So now whenever they ask me how to make anything, I'm like, I don't know, ask my mum. <laughs> but like, you know, so like they'll have effort is, um, tends to be spinach and... Um, or not a similarish type. They rarely use kale, so like there'll be spinach or similarly type vegetable, and you can make it obviously like vegetarian if you don't put fish or mm. or anything in it, and like you just make it in a sauce, like and sort oh, of spicy so sauce. Good. Before you had your career in film, you were at LSE as I mentioned, and yeah. you studied law. How? Why? <laughs> Because <laughs> it's just, it's it's such a complete opposite to what you do now. I, I mean, just... it, it sounds more complex than it is. But what happened was I went to college um, in Labrador Grove um, at St. Charles. And there was a guy called Noel Clark who had gone to the college 10 years before me. And he was auditioning people for a film, a low budget British film, which turned out to be Kidded. And that was how I officially got into acting. It's really funny, actually. I think about that conversation. I think about... As I get older, I think about how conversations can change your life. And like, you know, you just meet, you have this one conversation, it changes the course of your life forever. But it's just a chat. It wasn't nothing to it. I was on my way out of college. I saw no clock. I said to him, oh, who are you? My teacher came over, said, oh, this is a guy 
he went to our college, he's auditioning new talent for his film. He's a famous actor. I goes, oh, you're a famous actor. I've never seen you in anything. Um, this is me as a 17-year-old kid. Wow. Do you make money from acting? <laughs> is that like a job? Like, is that a real job? Because again, I was from a background where in order to make money, you had to get a real job, like law or accountancy or doctor, or like you had to do one of the, And I was always academic. I always got good grades at school because again, it's the Nigerian thing. I was just quite competitive and I just wanted to be the best at everything that I do. And so if it meant that the way for me to prove that is to get good grades, but I was still naughty. I was still like a bad kid. Like I would still do like disrupt lessons by talking all lesson, but I knew that I had to get good grades at the end of it. And so no Clark had this chat. It was like, well, stay, you can audition. And when I was at college, there were days where you could come in halfway f during the day because you didn't have lessons in the morning. The whole college was there auditioning. And I was thinking, what? No one was going to tell me that. <laughs> so you I was the only one going Yeah, home. <laughs> I would have missed out on that opportunity. But before this moment, had you had any interest in acting? Yeah, I was doing drama. I was doing drama at college. I, was, I, was, I did drama A-levels. So like, I got A's in all my subjects. So for me to pick it at A-levels, I, I must have liked it, right? This is how I decided stuff, right? And because my mum my was quite flexible as long as I did well. So I could just do what I liked. So... I picked for my A-levels subjects that I got A-stars in at GCSEs because I knew I didn't have to work as hard on them because I was already good at them. And check this though, when I was picking universities as well, I went through the top 10 list and I picked subjects, uh, I picked universities that didn't interview because I couldn't be bothered to go to interviews. Femi. Like, and because again, my mom was quite flexible as long as I went to a top university. So I was just like, which ones do I not have to take an entrance exam for? And which ones? So I didn't apply to UCL. I didn't apply to Oxbridge. All my teachers were like, you should go to Oxford and Cambridge. I was like, no, but I have to go for an interview for the weekend. Who wants to do that? <laughs> so LSE didn't interview anyone? Yeah, so they did. Wow, that they, really surprised They didn't me. interview anyone, but you had to write a really strong personal statement. Fine. And, but me, me and um, my, my really good friend Alex, like, we used to have a joke that LSE didn't interview everyone, but they managed to pick all the dickheads that were really <laughs> arrogant in the same sort of way. Like everyone at LSE was so similar yeah. and so arrogant about who they were in the world. Yeah. Like we, like somehow through the personal statement, there must have been key they must words. Have been some background there text. must have been key words oh, yeah. like, oh yeah, this person's full of it. <laughs> He, he can come in. Yeah, he can come in. And because everyone there was so full of it and thought they were the smartest person in the world. And I like that environment in a way because actually those people, I've never been around so many smart people in my life. They were so clever. And like they, they sort of knew, they thought they knew what they wanted to do in life. And they sort of knew that they, in a way, they were one of the chosen ones and they were going to like have an impact on the world. And I like that environment for that, but... So yeah, do you feel funny. like at the time, perhaps you were leading a bit of this like double life because you had your life at LSE studying law, which, you know, that's an incredibly prestigious university, although they don't bloody interview. Um, <laughs> they probably do now. I hope they do now. <laughs> um, and then you've kind of got this other side. You've met Noel, you know, he's casting for some little film that then becomes kid adulthood that then kind of catapulted you into this world of film and acting yeah. and... So did you feel like there was a real contradiction between In the a way, two? I had three lives. I had three lives. Uh, between when I was from 18 to about 21, I had three lives. I had like my acting world, which was like this sort of like liberal, progressive, like meeting different people for the first time from like, you know, all different walks of lives. Um, and then I had my ends world, like my friends from the hood that I grew up with that were from the ends that were doing like the ends stuff. And then I had like, you know, my really like essentially like upper middle class university friends that were in that world. And so I was sort of dabbling in all these different worlds. And I thought it made for like a richness of experience Absolutely. because I was... I remember like going back from uni and going to my friend's house and they're all on MySpace, but everyone at uni is on Facebook yeah. at this time. And like no one had ever heard of Facebook. And it was this weird thing that I, that was this exclusive uni thing. And then down to like the technology yeah, that we were yeah, using at the yeah. time, it was completely different. And then 
my acting friends were on their own little f- that was all they knew and they just wanted to be actors and they had all these dreams and ambitions and so it was really kind of I was living not even just a double life I was living this triple life where you know I had all these different people in my life that had different expectations of me and I was in a way sort of service I mean if you wanted to add it you had that you know just the Nigerian expectation the Nigerian world and what that looked like I'm me taking my mums to parties on Saturdays to like you know the where her and her friends were dressed in like these you know extravagant expensive fabrics yeah fabrics that you know I've bought from Switzerland You've just ruined it for me. It's I hilarious. thought they were all shipped over no, from Nigeria. It's hilarious. I don't believe it's it. It's actually hilarious. I've been living a lie. No, no, like literally, it's <laughs> hilarious. The the like the fabric, most of no. the fabrics from Switzerland is made in Switzerland, and it's super expensive. Oh, it's I like don't even know what so much more expensive than than um, than designer clothes sometimes. Damn. So, how did your mum feel about you now embarking on this this world of film? Like, I feel like my mum has been was even more my rock after uni. Like, in the early stages, my mum was easy because as long as you did well, and, like, academically, I was really good because I suppose, that like one of my key strengths at that stage in my life was, that like I could just sit down for hours and read a book. And, like, most... Like, you discuss, a lot of people can't do that. I was doing well in my education, and then the acting, I was making bits of money so I could flex. I could do little f- bits and bobs for myself. When I turned 21 and I came out of uni and I decided I wanted to go into acting, that was when it became a bit of a problem because it was like, but you're not making money. I don't understand. You've gone to this really prestigious university. You've got a law degree and you've done really well at your law degree. And you're, what are you doing? And that was really confusing for my mom for a while. And she found that really difficult me embarking on this career that was undefined like in any other creative medium you can do your creativity without permission in acting in modeling in any front facing it's just based on chance Mm -hmm. like you know I remember I was listening to a podcast of Kwame Koyamada over there and he said you know um uh, uh, an actor asks his dad who wa- also was an actor oh dad do you have any tips for me about acting and the dad says to the kid um, there, are, there are a thousand reasons why you won't get a role just make sure your acting is not one of them that's so true it's and, so, and true. so you, you, you are expected to be a brilliant actor and then there's a thousand other reasons why you're not going to get that role and so because of that that was really undefined and that was really um that would that was really difficult for me at that time. Well, I guess as well because it was so out of your control and everything up until then you kind of knew you were in control of. You knew that you were academic. You knew that you could sit down and read a book and and you know get through the exams and get into the uni and do all of that. You could you, as as I know, you could you could act and you still can act. But it could have been the fact that your eyebrows weren't the way yeah. they wanted it. Or, you know, they wanted longer hair or they wanted a taller person or whatever it There's could have been. There's so many factors. It's that, so cutthroat, and, that industry. And, and, and that, that, that was why I started to make my own stuff. That was, that was where that came from because it was like, I always, I needed to be in control of what I was doing. I needed to, to try to, um, to take back some power because actually when you're starting out, as an actor, there's a few actors that are lucky. They do one job and then they just blow uh, out of this world. That's and, like, what, one in a hundred yeah, people? Yeah, exactly. I mean. And so, but outside of that, I feel like, you know, I needed to, to, to start creating content. And I was really inspired during that period by sort of people like Jamie Winston, who had just made her first film, Elfie Hopkins. She produced it. And Plan B, who had made um, Ill Manners. And um, Adam Deacon, who made... Um, Another Hood and um, Jason Mazar and Arjun Rose who made uh, Demons Never Die two of those films I'm in but I was inspired by the fact that these people that I knew as actors were able to make films and that was what drove me to actually making my first feature film and so the first feature film was It's A Lot yeah 
So I'm just going to seamlessly bring in um, where my involvement in that was. First of all, you actually got me as an extra on that. You won't remember, but you made me come all the way to Leytonstone to come and stand outside a shop or something. I think in the end that scene got cut. So you owe me one. Um, But I met you through um, a mutual friend whilst you were still at uni. And this was when you'd sort of you must have been about a year into what was a side project at the time, Cut the Chat, which was this this chat show, which I think you guys kind of loosely described it as like the male loose women. Yeah. And it was set in a barbershop in North London. I'd been introduced to you because I had just sort of was desperate to get into presenting. And you kind of gave... (laughs) You gave me this role that, I mean, I came in onto the main panel for a few episodes and then I started having my own little, like, what was it called? Like little top tips. Yeah. Top tips. But it was like cut the chat on this a bit on the side or something. Um, If you ever find those rushes, destroy them. I found uh, those clips are still on YouTube, you know. The first episode I filmed with you guys, we had to go to a uh, driving range. Do you remember? That was fun. And. I don't know where that back. footage is, it's but that so was fun. It's so horrendous. I was so nervous. And you put out this episode and I was like, what What am I doing? Like, what is this? Do you know what What was great about Cut the Chat at that time? Um, we, we now do it as a podcast because it's easier. I feel like, you know, it was before its time in a way because that was before like, you know, those DSLR cameras and all of these things. And like, you know, it would have been... Like, it could have grown in that time to be something a little bit more special than what it was. It was special, and it still is special, Cut the Chat. But I felt like, you know, we we were just... For me, that was just an experimentation. We're experimenting in, in making con- content. I remember when we would do some of those sort of cut the chat bits on the side the access that i remember i used to get just like filming in certain places without any need for permission but i thought you were great as well i thought you, you were great I think, I think you're a good producer you know i think you're good in terms of like you know putting stuff together really like see i get very nervous with no but reflecting like on 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 that period mm. like because i've never actually i've not reflected on it i think you were a really good producer because I think at the time I so desperately wanted that career for myself, I would have done anything to get to it. You know, obviously I then embarked on a 10-year photography career and, that, and you know, that was, that's been amazing. But I think I was a little bit naive. You know, you gave me the opportunity to get in front of the camera and, and essentially try and hone in on my skill. But I kind of thought it was all going to happen overnight. And that was you know, my naivety and that's absolutely fine. And I obviously then had to go and find a career and make money and whatever. But yeah. you know, and now here we're here on, no, on I, my own podcast. I think I think, I think you I think like, you know, you underestimated like, you know, sort of what you were able to do in that period is do all of that and then start putting together stuff like, you know, getting the guests, like getting the location yeah. and being able to do all of that and pull it all together. Like we were all like sort of taking risk and I think at that period of time maybe I think I was what 21 22 it really helped me like you know sort of my sanity I felt like I was doing something I felt like I was part of something and I was being sort of disruptive and these are things that I value now and I love now and these are traits that you know I I feel get keep pushing me to where I'm getting to and keep challenging me and you know, my mind, my mindset, my willingness to learn and to grow and to constantly try new things. And I feel like that was honed in that period. And I, I might have been even like depressed in that period because like my acting career wasn't really going where I wanted it to. And, you know, cut the chat and doing the content with you, that really helped me, man. I think that was that was good for my sanity in that time. I'm glad I could be of service. <laughs> <laughs> There are two points, two moments that changed my life. So the intent definitely changed my life. I think kidhood changed my life because I'll probably be a lawyer if I didn't do kidhood. But I feel like the intent was the second injection that I needed to elevate me, to have these conversations that I'm having now, to build a team in the US and to build a team here and to have like a credible film career. It cemented my status as an adult that's the project as an adult that made me like you know people see me now and they want me to be the guy from kiddo i'm not the guy from kiddo i did that when i was 17 
it kind and, of like it, it brought you into the next chapter yeah and, and it was an opportunity yeah. I feel like you know the intent we made it for like next to no money but we I knew exactly what it needed to be and I was in that edit with the editor making it into that and me and Nikki were left alone no one expected it to be anything I felt when we put the intent when we did the deal to put the intent on Netflix I felt like we had just released the film again the way people were congratulating me but in 2013 I had a film on Netflix no one cared mm. but all of a sudden this new one does the comes out in the cinema the few people that could be bothered to go and watch it in the cinema watch it the few people that could be bothered to download it, download it. Few people that could be bothered to buy the DVD, buy the DVD. And then we get it on Netflix and it's like a completely new release again without any marketing, without anything. It just felt like word of mouth. It became this thing. Like, you know, the intent one's the baby because that was all or nothing. I think if that didn't work, maybe I would have gone and got a job yeah. as something else. That was the project that... Do you feel like that was sort of as you've just mentioned, was that kind of like, if this doesn't work, then... That was it. That, that was it. I'll be I, honest. I've put everything into this now. I'll be honest to you, that moment, I remember I was working, we raised the money to do that in term. We shot it in 2014. And then it didn't come out till 2016. Wow. Because we had to go and raise more money from our friends to do the post-production. We did that. And I remember like, you know, at that point, if that project didn't work, I don't know how I would have gone on to make the intent to. And now we've got like so many projects as a joke. Like I start telling people, even I get, I start listing it and it's just, I don't realise how much it is because I'm in it. And then I start listing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, we've got about five or six films that we're working on. So what are you putting your hand to in terms of the projects? Like, what is the message that you are wanting to sort of put out there with the things that you are now working on? What's important to me, we were talking to our management in the US and we were talking about, about the rationale, why we do what we do. Because you initially, when you start doing stuff, you do it for the sake of doing it. Like, when I started doing Cut the Chat, I was doing it for the sake of doing it. Now Cut the Chat for me is an important platform because you don't, you rarely get platforms where black men congregate and talk together without without conflict, without all the stereotypes attached to black men communicating. Mm. Now actually Cut the Chat's a political statement. At the moment, because it changes, right? At the moment, the intention is, is very important due to like the political climate, but I've always been about this. The intention is to make content that reflects a broad perspective of the lived experiences of black people globally. And whatever that means, my projects need to fit into that remit. That's my rationale right now, as of today. That's evolving, that might change. I might wake up one day and decide, no, I'm bored of making content with black people in it, I want. But right now, as of today, that's what I wanna do. I feel that's important politically, I feel that's important financially i feel that's an economic opportunity because no one's doing it and no one has been doing it in an accurate way and an authentic way and even i've not been doing it in an accurate and authentic way Why so far in my career so? because because the lived experiences of black people globally has never been portrayed properly because i feel it's always been very limited right and so take if i say jamaica you think of that bobsleigh film, if you think of film, right? What's that film called? Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings. Most people globally think of Cool Runnings. The actors in that are not even Jamaican. So yeah. that's not yeah. real. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cool film. Right. We yeah. liked it, yeah. but it's not real. It's yeah. a Disney film. Yeah. It's a Disney right. version of Jamaica. Yeah. It's actually made by Disney, right? And so we, um, we, then, we then think about black British people and we think about all the hood films, which I've been involved in. But that's not the lived experience because the majority of black people that I know do not live in that world. And so when I'm talking to middle-class white people that go to my church and they like, yeah, I've been watching Top Boy or I've been watching The Intent and blah, blah, blah. And they, they start talking to you with this fear in their eye of like, oh my gosh, it's so sad that black kids yeah. have to go. But that's not the lived experience yeah. of the kids that I went to St. Charles College with because the majority of them we're just getting A-levels like everyone else. So like, we, we don't, we don't, we, we tell stories 
through a limited gaze. And that's not just people like me. That's the mainstream does that as well. That's what we've been conditioned. Yeah. And so so then you get projects about Africa that's about poverty or like someone wanting to be to improve their life or something. Those are the types of films that do well about Africa. And so it's always this sort of warped perspective, warped, limited perspective of the lived experience of black people globally. And so I feel like a responsibility to not only tell the intents, but I feel a responsibility to tell the story of my little sister who went to university, got a degree, works in music, is to all intents and purposes a really successful 25-year-old. And there's nothing that reflects that experience, Mm. you know? And so, like, I feel responsible to tell my mum's story. Like, I've got a concept um, based on my mum's experiences, like, as a care worker, which, you know, people, like, you know, sort of clap for the NHS, clap for care workers. But, like, you know, my mum and a generation of African women have done those jobs for years and years. And no, I've never seen a film about them. And so I feel responsible to tell that story now. And then, you know, you've got so many, there's so many layers like, you know, so for me right now, what I want to do, what we are doing and what we've been working on is we are doing a slate for the UK, a slate for Nigeria, a slate for Jamaica and a slate for the States. And I want them to be really authentic stories about all these different territories. The fact that society makes being black a political statement for me, even if I don't want it to be. So I need to be political in the way I create my work, but I want my work to be entertaining. I don't like preachy work. Yeah. I like the intent because it's fun, it's action, it's a bit silly, it's a bit over the top in in places, but I want to entertain people. But the rationale behind all of this is are these ideas that I'm telling you. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. It's, and I sort of was about to say earlier, is that we've all been conditioned that if you want to, to believe that if we want to see a film about Africa, it has to be about poverty and strive and, you know, children on the streets. It doesn't need to be that. It can actually be about real stories that is exactly what you want to make about normal people. And that their skin colour is black. They are still carers. They are still actors they're still they're everything else yeah. they don't need to be the absolute extreme Absolutely. they don't need to be on the street selling drugs because that's what we've all been led to believe black people who don't have much money are living in the estate that's not and do you everyone. know what's, what's hilarious <laughs> about estates as well especially in london is how diverse they are yeah and like people make out like they're just not mm. people make out like the black community which is singular yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because because in the, in England as well the funny thing about the black community in England more so than probably like in you know with African Americans because they've got a unified history is that like everyone has such such um slightly different experiences of what it means to be black because like you know take me my wife and my sister right we're all black right to the mainstream right we're all black my wife's mixed race right She's half South African, half English. My sister is Nigerian, but was born here and has been to Nigeria twice in her life. I'm Nigerian. I moved there when I was 10 years old. I'm 33 years old now. So I've lived there for 23 years. And so you've got these three people that are in the same family, mm. but their experience, that like the, the way, what has wired them to become black is completely different and i didn't even to be fair i didn't even know about race and racism and stuff like that till i moved to england because in nigeria that's a useless concept because everyone's just nigerian yeah and like you know nigerians don't even necessarily that the concept of black is a western concept because nigerians just see themselves as nigerian and all yoruba all Igbo, all Aosa. they see themselves as from their tribe more so than they see themselves as even Nigerian at times. So it's like all these concepts of identity and all of that is really important. But as of today, because I live in England, I'm a black British person and I have to sort of try to grapple with what that means within my work, but not in an overly political way. And do you think, sort of just lastly touching on this before we get back to food at some point, (laughs) just sort of back to the current climate, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, 
do you think this time there is going to be a change, in particular with the industry that you're in, which is film? Yeah, absolutely. Because do you like think you this know, is the I think I think happen? I think if there's not going to be change now, I don't think there's ever going to be change because I um, I've had Zoom conversations with BAFTA about what BAFTA should be doing as BAFTA as that organization. You know, and that was yesterday, you know, Mm. at this time yesterday, that was what I was doing. Like, you know, and so that's never happened. These conversations have never happened. I feel like people across the board in all different sectors are open to having, for the first time, an honest conversation about race and racism and stereotypes and um, systemic racism and all of these things, which exist. Like, you know, and we just have to... we. I think the first step is admitting that these things exist because a lot of people are in denial because when you say to someone that racism exists and they belong to the group that has power, in that situation, they feel like it's a slight on them as an individual. And so they become really defensive. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're never en masse really able to have a conversation about race because people are defensive and think you're accusing them of being a racist no the system is racist and what you can do to stop that is to stop holding that system and i hate like the phrase white privilege and white superiority and all of that white supremacy and all of that i think it's horrible i think they're unhelpful phrases because actually most my white friends don't feel like they've got privilege or superiority because of their positioning. And like, it it almost exaggerates the power that they have in these situations. But I feel like it's more helpful to talk about, you know, ideas, ideas around, you know, key facts and statistics and bring that to people because they can't question that. Mm. Because white supremacy is this big idea and it sounds scary and it's like, no, I don't think I'm superior to anyone. I'm equal. I love people. How dare you call me superior? Well, as you said, it's, it's, it is quite an unhelpful phrase and then it bring, pr- brings everyone's backs up. Yeah, you're like, no, 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 that's not me. No, I'm not what, that. What, no. What? Yeah. So like, you know, and we need to check all these biases. Yeah. That's why it's important that for the first time, my black friends are publicly having the conversations that black people have all the time with themselves with my non-black friends this is the first time i've ever seen it black people talk about race all the time black people talk about racism all the time but it's within it's within the black community yeah. with their yeah. black friends it's a complex but, but let's talk but, about but, food. But also very powerful position that the world is in right now absolutely it's so important and, it's so important you know about bloody time you spoke about your Nigerian upbringing and your amazing grandmother having this breakfast business, catering yeah. company business. Do you cook a lot of Nigerian food nowadays? Um, not really, I'll be honest. I don't even really cook um, that much, <laughs> Like, if I'm being honest with you. I, I, um, I'm a lazy chef. Like, okay. you know, I'm a lazy chef. So I would like make... I would fry some fish and like, you know, make some veg to go with it or quinoa or something. So is your wife My wife is the primary, she's the lead chef. Does she make a lot of South African dishes? No, she doesn't as well, unfortunately. Like, you know, my my mum, I still visit my mum a lot. My mum makes a lot of Nigerian food. So she cooks a a lot of like, you know, jollof rice and because the kids like jollof rice, it's it's accessible Nigerian food, isn't it? Are the kids fussy or do they, they like everything? The kids eat different foods to each other so sometimes on my my poor wife makes like two or three different meals for for all of us but now that's going away now i think the kids are now unified i think the great thing about living in london what i love about living in london is like getting to like try different food from different places and i feel there aren't that many places like it's probably like new york and like a few other places like london where you can literally get food from anywhere and i just i just love that and i I love trying different food where are some of your favorite places to eat in london i like um what's that place that i really like my sister i got her the cookbook and um it's called dishum oh dishum so you know dishum is actually like a hybrid indian iranian Iranian thing yeah Yeah. that's why i said i I don't think it's It's like one of my favorite places she made this dessert yeah that I think is the sickest dessert ever. It's just the best, right, ever. It's it's 
pineapple pie. That sounds amazing. It was like so, a pineapple cake or a pie. A, it was a pie. like like apple pie, but oh with my, pineapple yeah, in it. Oh amazing. my gosh, it was. The, Is that in their cookbook? It's in their oh, cookbook. Okay. It I was like the best thing ever, and I I was going on about it, and everyone was like, "That sounds disgusting." I'm like, the idea of it sounds foreign because you don't really get pineapple much in desserts. Unless it's like a piece of pineapple. Yeah, I mean, you can't. There's like a very famous, um, like upside down pineapple cake you can make where you really? have like the pineapple slices like that have been cooked underneath the cake at the bottom of the well, batter. Dude, like you know, <laughs> I I couldn't stop eating it. I might even ask her to make. That sounds someone. really good. It was incredible, and I loved it. I like Basaba is like my easy to go yeah. place because I like Thai food. Um, Do you eat Nigerian food anywhere? There's. A Niger- the Nigerian place I like yeah, is like not really a, a sit-in place. It's called Asorok. Okay. Um, it's in Dawson. It's like a takeout place, takeaway place. That's a good Nigerian restaurant. I don't feel like there's many Nigerian restaurants. There's there needs loads. to be more. There's really? loads, just not west. Not no. west. <laughs> well, can we bring one west? Yeah, there's not. They're not not in west. So I there's... used to go to um eight oh five quite a lot. Eight oh five was good. Um, it's really good actually. Yeah. So like, it's I... kind of like quite. You know, they got white table cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's all of it. You know, it wants to be. It wants to be West End. <laughs> it wants to be like West last End. Last time I was there, I think it was last year actually, and I sort of made this sort of like my yearly pilgrimage down to the old Kent Road, which is very far from me. Um, and it was so zhuzhy. There was like Bentleys all parked outside and all sorts. <laughs> I was like, where am I? What is happening? <laughs> Things have changed around here. But no, it's, it's, I like, I like 805. There's a place called Tommy's Kitchen. There's one in Woolwich. And, but there was a place called Obalende Suya, which is really good. Um, a Suya spot. Do you know Suya? I know what it is, but I haven't actually Suya's tried like it. Suya's like incredible. Yeah. It's like kind of, how do I even describe it? I don't know how to describe it. It's like grilled meat. Yeah. Sort it's of kind thing. of like your version of like an Iranian juja kebab. Yeah, it's, it's like, like every, a kebab. I feel like every cuisine has its... A kebab. So, kebab, basically. <laughs> you kind of got like the doner kebabs, you got... Yeah, yeah. so it's like yeah. a kebab and I, I, I really... Um, and you I, eat them usually like roadside. And yeah, stuff so you eat Nigeria. them roadside yeah. and you have it with like the raw, um, they chop um, onions. You have yeah. to have it with the onions otherwise it's not really amazing. authentic but yeah so i like suya a lot and so obalende suya there used to be one in in dawson but now it's a tesco which is <laughs> annoying but that was my spot that was one of my spots but outside of that i just my mom's my mom's say. cooking i mean that would always suffices. be the best exactly so i always end my interviews with a few quick fire questions yeah most people listening will know that my favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps yeah. What is your favourite flavour of crisps and why? Shall I tell you the truth? I know. Don't break my heart. Yeah. All don't right. break I my won't. heart. I won't. If you're about to tell me that you don't like crisps. I don't like crisps. No, Femi, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> I don't like crisps. I don't like crisps. No. I, I, I will have crisps. Do you like, know what? I like, like, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. You. I like kettle chips and okay. I like the red packet one. Like the, the chilli, sort of sweet yeah, chilli ch- one. Yeah, sweet chilli. Okay, That's fine. my favourite crisp. I feel like I forced your hand on this. That's my favorite crisp. No, no, factually, that okay, if, if okay. I were, I could munch on that. I could okay. have loads of that. Okay, I, I sometimes eat the the big pack okay. myself, <laughs> but I prefer popcorn to chip okay. um, to to crisp and uh, chips. American. <laughs> I prefer popcorn to crisp. Like a, like a sweet popcorn. Yeah, like a sweet yeah, popcorn because I'm a sweet. sweet like you know, crisp is more savory, yeah. and I like actually in between. I like plantain crisp now. Oh, so that's what I do more. Okay, fine. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? I've had snake before. Snake? Yeah, I've eaten snake. Where? In Nigeria. I've eaten snake. Damn. I think I've is eaten snake. Is that really tough? Snake is like chewy chicken. Oof. I that's don't what know it how I feel like. about that. I've eaten... I don't like oysters because it I just crawls down your throat. Yeah, but you know you're meant to... Why? You know, it crawls down your throat. It's an old wives' tale, but what? you're meant to bite it before you swallow it. Oh, really? I just... Yeah experienced it going down my throat i thought like no 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 no. food shouldn't be swimming down my throat <laughs> it shouldn't be alive yeah it shouldn't be like it. swimming no stop it stop it the so, consistency yeah. a lot of people don't like no, it was weird yeah. it was the weirdest experience i've had snail no no I nigerians know. eat snail no, 
Like, but not like it's not like you go to a Nigerian restaurant and they'll have snails. Like it's like these is, really. Is it, in, like, is it quite sort of like a delicacy? Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not like a thing really within like general Nigerian cuisine. But like I've had snail before. But they have big African giant African snails. So it's not like the so escargot like where it's like no, really small like they have like really big like you know giant snails i remember my little sister she she loves this story well i don't know if she loves it but my stepdad back in the day where you can like smuggle snails over <laughs> my stepdad and my sister went to nigeria and um my my stepdad's my sister's dad okay. and um went to nigeria and um so like you know this father-daughter trip like, came back and they brought back a snail and my stepdad, they were growing this snail for ages. And then my stepdad ate it. Eventually he cooked it. Oh, I'm sorry. And my sister was so upset. Because like, you know, this snail was alive for a while. And they were just, you know, I sort of. I have the most horrific phobia of snails. So yeah. you're talking to me about giant snails. It's like making my No, they're huge. Well, they're no, like, it's like the size of no, this. No, no. So it's not, I'm not talking about like the tiny little ones. I can't even like, walk near the snails. Really? Oh, no, no, I'm actual, actual terrified snails. of them. What has been your most memorable meal? Three meals that I really enjoyed. I can think of three. Like my cousin lives in New Jersey. And so I took my family and two meals there, actually, they got us. Like, you know, we had lots of good food in America. They took us to this steak restaurant and it was just the best steak ever and i don't eat meat yeah i was about to say so right? big coming from me. yeah right yeah. so like i had it was incredible the best steak restaurant ever and i i think about that restaurant quite a lot like you know and also they got us a burrito which i still think is the best burrito ever <laughs> i don't even know where it's from they ordered it in like we were staying with them for half the time we stayed in new york for half the time and stayed with them for half the time and it was just the best burrito and I literally would go to New York for the weekend for this burrito. I make a joke to my wife all the time that one Friday you're just going to call me and I'm not here and I've just gone to New York. <laughs> it's to funny because I've had a lot of different answers um, in past episodes and actually sometimes it doesn't need to be some fancy meal. It could just be this really insane burrito that like I once had a salad in some tiny town on the west coast of america yeah and i still can't stop thinking, thinking about, about it. it and i will one day get on a plane and go, go back to, to that this place and just have this salad. literally i mean like i've but got just, i can't stop thinking about i've it. got so many so many like you know my my favorite meal in jamaica is there's a place called elsha beach and it's a fishing town and there's a beach there with like you know sort of like what not well off people they're probably well off from like it being a famous touristy yeah. spot and it's basically small shacks on the beach and you get lobster you get fish like fresh picked on that day you pick what lobster lobster's still alive you see it alive and you pick which one you want to eat and they cook it for you in terms of like here like you know sometimes my wife makes really good food mm -hmm. like she all the time obviously she's going to listen to this all the time she makes really good food but she's the best cookie but ever. exactly <laughs> but every so often like the other day like we had some we had lo loads of prawns and i was like oh why don't we just have like pasta and prawn and it was just like the most incredible meal i definitely like just simple meals done well finally live to eat or eat to live no live to eat Definitely. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to say Definitely, that. Yeah, I think, that's what you are. I think eat to live is like, sort of like, functional. Yeah. I'm not a functional it's food sort person. sort of like fuel for the body. Yeah, and you know what, I find it so strange when people can do that. I think you're so skilled, because that's what food is meant to be. <laughs> right? And then you've got us lot Yeah, it's just a mass, mass, mass consumption <laughs> people. I think, I look at them and I'm so jealous, because I think, oh my gosh, you... You are in control of what goes in you and all of that. But like, I would just see food and I think that looks good. I want to have that and I'll I mean, just I, have it. I mean, when I'm eating breakfast, I'm thinking of lunch and, and so forth. Absolutely. I think yeah. definitely. I think that's the way, man. I think you can't work so hard and live the lives we live and not and have, you know, sort of the privilege. The privilege that we have is that we can eat whatever food we want. And I just think that's so amazing. I think obviously you should do everything in moderation and look after your health and all of that stuff. But I think you should really enjoy food. Damn right. And what a way to end the uh, the chat on. Thank you so much for joining me. This was very 
it, first of all, it was so exciting to see you again after so long. <laughs> yeah. And also just, you know, listening to about what you've been up to, how you got into the world of, of film. And you've taught me a few little Nigerian dishes that I need to go and find. Um, you can follow Femi on social media at Femi Oyeniran. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and joining me this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend and another and maybe another. Don't forget to follow all the crazy sexy antics on Instagram at crazy sexy food. And please visit the crazy sexy food YouTube channel where you will find the food show, how to videos, interviews and everything in between. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.